Hey, Rick. Hello. Thank you for making the time. I know that this is like... Insane. As I waited and waited for the results of the Iowa caucuses Monday night, the one person I wanted to talk to was this guy, Rick Hassan. It wasn't supposed to be this way, you know. I mean, for months I've had on my um, Twitter header, election meltdown February 4th, 2020, but I didn't mean it quite that literally. (laughs) You didn't mean it as a countdown clock? Election Meltdown is the name of Rick's new book. It's about Election Day nightmares. What happens if the electricity goes out at the polls? What happens if the loser of an election refuses to concede? He's pretty much thought of it all. Every election, I want it to be quiet, you know, because if people are calling me, there's a real problem. But even Rick hadn't imagined this week's scenario, a complicated process in Iowa that was made even more complicated by new rules, a troublesome smartphone app that seemed unable to tally up results, and a state Democratic Party completely unprepared for what happened next. Well, this may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. I think I had a piece in 2008 and 2012 in Slate saying, kill the caucuses, uh, because they keep having problems. But this, this, you know, may have gone beyond things. It does seem to be a situation of incompetence. You know, the eyes of the world are on Iowa Once every four years, this is the moment, and they didn't do adequate testing. And, you know, just like you wouldn't premiere your brand new play right straight to Broadway, no rehearsal, that's kind of what happened here. So today on the show, Rick's going to explain what this very first test of 2020 says about all the elections to come. Because there are a whole lot of them. And the thing is, Iowa's caucus implosion, Rick thinks it's got an upside. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As of 5 o'clock last night, we still only had a little more than half of the precinct results in Iowa. 62%, to be precise. They showed Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders neck and neck. But there was enough wiggle room here that just about every candidate was claiming some kind of victory. And when those results are announced, I have a good feeling we're going to be doing very, very well here in Iowa. Despite some limited resources compared to some of those bigger bank accounts, we are way on the board. By all indications... We are going on to New Hampshire victorious. When he met with reporters, the head of the Iowa Democratic Party refused to say when he would release the rest of the results. Rick Hassan has spent his career trying to understand election officials like this. He says a lot of them are simply incompetent. So I asked Rick, is what happened in Iowa simply the result of human error? 
It sure seems that way. I mean, we've been given limited information, but from what we can tell, they did two things new, right? One is they rolled out this app for reporting results that wasn't working right and hadn't been adequately tested, and they and they turned down federal cybersecurity help to make sure it was it was uh, working well. They turned it down. Yeah, apparently that's what uh, DHS has said. Uh, and then uh, they, you know, they changed some of the voting rules to to I think assuage the concerns of Bernie Sanders supporters about last time and about representativeness. After 2016, Bernie Sanders supporters were worried the caucus process had quashed their enthusiasm. Bernie had lost to Hillary Clinton by less than a single percentage point. And because voters in Iowa can switch their candidates if their first choice doesn't seem viable, a few outlier precincts can really change the candidate math. So this time around, the Democratic Party agreed to release a raw tally of votes from the so-called first alignment, along with traditional data on how many state delegates a candidate won after the caucus process was all said and done. Then they added this app to the mix. It was a way for precinct captains to report all this information right from their smartphones. Only problem was that they didn't train the caucus workers and how to use the app. Who is who's running this process like day to day, like on the ground? We should talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, right. So this is the Iowa Democratic Party, and they're only really doing this once every four years. It's, these are not the people who ordinarily are government officials who run elections in Iowa. And so, you know, on top of all the other criticisms of the caucuses, you know, they're unrepresentative. Uh, there's no secret ballot. There's peer pressure. People who are working can't come. On top of that, they're run, it's like amateur hour sometimes, and it is really not the way you want to count something that is of great importance. And that's exactly what we did here. There were reports over the last uh, month or so about the problems that could occur, and yet they proceeded. Hmm. There's a lot of people saying that after this, Iowa should never go first again, or that caucuses are doomed. You've really looked at the history here, and I'm wondering if you buy that. Well, it's hard to get rid of the Iowa caucus in particular because presidential candidates who, you know, come two years before the presidential election and are meeting with local people will pledge to keep Iowa in that place. And then, you know, it's really hard to move off of that. But maybe this latest meltdown is such a disaster that we can get some movement to um, get rid of. uh, Even if Iowa still goes first, I just don't think it should be with a caucus and certainly not with a caucus that is run by a political party rather than by election professionals. It's funny. You say it's undemocratic. I've heard the opposite argument, though, too. Like, this is how democracy should work. Neighbors talking to neighbors, convincing people to go one way or another, people having to declare themselves publicly. Do you buy that? Well, I think there's something communitarian about that. But, of course, you're starting with a very skewed community. Uh, Iowa itself is already not very representative of the Democratic Party in terms of demographics. You know, it's older, it's whiter. Um, but, you know, it, it, you're, you exclude people. I think this was the first time we had a caucus where they made accommodations for disabilities on a, a large scale. You know, people who are out of the country. So now we had we had a Paris caucus for Iowa now because it really, it, you know, you had to be there in person. So they've made all of these kind of half measures to try to make it more representative in order to preserve Iowa's ability to go first. Because if they made it into a primary, then they would run headlong into a fight with New Hampshire, another unrepresentative state, over who would have the first primary. Hold it. So the reason they go first is because they're a caucus? Because... Right. So New Hampshire says, you know, we are the first primary. 
and and they are. It's not a primary in uh, Iowa. It's a caucus. And so that's kind of the way that we get around this. Uh, if we had two primaries going uh, first, you know, there'd be a fight there. And all the presidential candidates who end up controlling the political parties, they don't want to alienate the voters in these states. And that's why this very undemocratic system continues to persist. For years, there have been alternative proposals. One that I like is the rotating regional primary. So in you know one election year, the, the Pacific Northwest would go first. You'd have a cluster of states up there, and the next time it might be the Southeast. And this way, uh, candidates could concentrate geographically in one part of the country, and everyone would get a turn. Uh, that's not the problem that led to the meltdown in Iowa, but you know there's lots of ways that we could try to fix the undemocratic nature of Iowa and New Hampshire going first if we wanted to. I mean, we sort of ticked off all the things that happened here, all these layers of complication that seem to have added up to a real debacle in Iowa. It seems like someone should have, could have stepped in and said, maybe this is too much. Like, why didn't that happen? So was it Will Rogers who said, uh, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, uh, this is run by the party and, you know, uh, petty party things get in there and regional allegiances uh, get in there and all kinds of internal party politics uh, play a role. I certainly hope that for November we can do a better job. Of course, we're not using caucuses to choose the president in November, so that's a good thing. As the primaries play out, Rick says it is this opportunity to test out the systems all of us are going to rely on come fall. Part of the problem he sees is that states make their own decisions about what kind of technology they're going to use at the ballot box. There's just not one national standard. But, you know, there's a role for the federal government here, too. I mean, Congress has the power to set the rules for elections, uh, federal elections. And Congress can set some rules about what kind of machinery and what kind of standards can be used. And we haven't started talking about this, you know question about voting machines, the voting machines themselves that are going to be used, the ones that are going to be used in Georgia uh, or in North Carolina or in Pennsylvania, they're going to be rolled out the first time, that are going to produce a barcode that's going to be read by a machine. And there's a question of, well, how do you audit that and know that the machine is properly counting the votes the way voters wanted them? Right. Like if I vote and I look at a barcode, I don't know what that barcode means. Right. So the, the the big fight now is, say there's a recount in a jurisdiction that's used one of these uh, ballot marking device machines. What's going to control the non-human readable barcode or QR code or the name that gets printed on the ballot? And at least in Georgia, it looks like the answer is going to be the computer wins, not the human. And that seems to me to be a terrible way to run an election. All this variation can lead to a lot of uncertainty. And that uncertainty can look a lot like what we saw Monday night state officials pleading for patience? Well, I think time is a reasonable thing to ask for. I think, and here's something that people are going to have to get used to, this idea. We really may not know who is the president for days after the presidential election because it takes time to count ballots. And places like um, Pennsylvania are now for the first time allowing anyone who wants to vote by absentee ballot. And absentee ballots take a much longer time to count because they have to be verified to make sure that they're coming from the person who they're supposed to be coming from. Uh, so time is not the problem. And if, in fact, the Iowa Democratic Party had said, listen, this is a complicated thing. 
we will announce results on Wednesday. And I think people would have, you know, they would have said, humph, I don't like that. But they would have moved on. It wouldn't have been this thing where, you know, every reporter in America is waiting for the results to send to their readers and their listeners. And every candidate is ready to make one of two speeches, either the, the winning speech or the losing speech, and then nothing for hours and hours and hours. And then this cryptic thing from the Democratic Party about quality control issues, which sounds bizarre. Again, quote, we found inconsistencies in the reporting of three sets of results. So something wasn't matching up and making sense, it seems, uh, between that first vote, final vote, and those states. Sounds votes. like a technical problem. Which led to Republicans piling on and trying to sully the whole thing by saying that there's some intentional rigging going on. I mean, it was just a disaster how they dealt with the problem even after the problem arose. But it's interesting because what you're saying is that at least half of this disaster was just expectation setting. Like what the Iowa Democratic Party said was, we're going to have these results at a certain time. CNN makes their plans. They get all their people in front of a desk and in front of a camera ready to talk. Then it gets to be 10 o'clock. Those people get anxious. They start transmitting their anxiety to their audience. More anxiety is sort of created. And then it becomes a kind of unvirtuous circle. Yeah, no, I think this is right. It's it's an expectations game. And and remember, you know, the whole point of my book, Election Meltdown, is asking the question, how do we know that we've had a fair election so that the losers will accept the result and be willing to say, oh, that was a tough battle. We lost this time, but we're going to fight again next time and things are going to be better next time. Uh, you know, that depends on a lot of things going right. And uh, there are so many things that could go wrong. So expectations are a big part of all of this. Listening to you talk, I can't help but think there are just so many ways for this to go wrong. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the good news is it only matters in a very close election. And, you know, we're not going to have a close election this time, right? <laughs> that was going to be my last question to you, which is, it seems to me that things have been bad, but we're noticing it now because our elections are so close. Like, that highlights all the problems because the yes. stakes are just so much higher. And not only that, it, it, not only does it uh, are the stakes raised, it, what it also does is that there's less room for being understanding. Yes, yeah, somebody messed up. They're only human. They did the best they could. You know, that, that, that doesn't work when the stakes are so high. You're, you're, you're less able to be understanding when the stakes are so high and you're bound to see things that are mere incompetence as something much more nefarious. And so that just contributes to the overall distrust of, of the process, which is why we need not only better administration, but greater transparency so people know what's going on. So you're really pitching us forward from this moment where we're looking at Iowa and kind of saying, oh, what a mess. You're saying, listen, you need to strap in for more mess. <laughs> and I'm wondering how we can tell our listeners to get ready for that, because it's very anxiety provoking. So I wonder for the voters who are listening, what would you tell them about resetting their expectations? So I do think that talking, just like talking about voter suppression can be demobilizing, talking about election problems could be demobilizing. But the reason I wrote Election Meltdown now, rather than for it to come out in October, uh, is because we have about nine months where lots of things could be done to minimize the chances of a meltdown, including things that could be done to make sure that our election administration and our voting machines are 
in good shape. And so now's not the time for complacency. Now's the time for action. And now's the time for citizen activism to ensure that election officials are going to work in a fair and transparent way. I mean, I think everywhere voters should be insisting on transparency in their local election processes. Because elections are being administered on the county or a lower level, there's room for people to be active and involved and observing and trying to give input. So my message is one of uh, uh, quite the opposite. It's, It's not too late to try to minimize the chances of a problem. Let's see what we can do right now. Yeah, I kind of wonder if you look at what's happening in Iowa and think, in a way, this could be good in the long run because... Yes, it's a wake-up call. I think that's that's how... This was relatively low stakes. There were 41 delegates at stake. I mean, there was bragging rights, sure, and, you know, it was all of this media buildup. But in the scheme of things... You know, someone could come in fourth or fifth in Iowa and still easily win the nomination, you know, in terms of the the delegate count. This is just a wake-up call that things are messed up in a lot of ways, and we need to get our act together very quickly. Rick Hassan, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be with you. Rick Hassan is the author of Election Meltdown, You should also check out the stories he's been working on with Dahlia Lithwick over at the Amicus podcast. Okay, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Mara Silvers, Jason DeLeon, and Danielle Hewitt. I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.